It's back. No, not we're back. That's, of course, obvious since we're running our mouths here on the CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg app. It's back. SRX, Superstar Racing Experience, tonight, ESPN, and next week, Stafford Speedway back, back on back the weeks. schedule, back-to-back weeks because of flooding in Vermont. Tom Bowles, Michael Massey, Stephen Stump, all there for Front Stretch. Yes, indeed. Well, keep up with them at frontstretch.com. Uh, as we chatted with them earlier, it's up fast lane, Ed Lane, where you listen to podcasts. May go a smidge over today because we always enjoy our chats with Chuck Culpepper, Washington Post sports reporter and columnist, and traveling connoisseur who happens to just go with his husband who likes the free rides. Apparently not a fan of the sports part of things, Chuck. But, you know, hey, I don't blame you. You got a spouse that wants to be able to get some free lodging and some cool travel experiences out of this. Seems like you found a really nice loophole to maximize uh, covering sports and uh, being able to get everything you'd want out of it, huh? We're having a quite a summer. I mean, when you factor in that summer starts in May now, let's go ahead and say that. And um, <laughs> nowadays, and uh, we're at the French Open and now headed to Australia uh, for the Women's World Cup. And then in between the U.S. Open in Los Angeles. So feel like really, really, really lucky. Yes, well, you are, and we're lucky to get your insights at Chuck Culpepper on Instagram and Chuck Culpepper1 on Twitter, of course, in addition to WashingtonPost.com, where you document all of that. Uh, we'll look at the events that you are covering and have been covering. Tennis as well as the Women's World Cup in just a moment. Uh, but before we do that, we had an interesting discussion on Virginia Tech, Liberty, and Virginia, and kind of the perception around those programs entering the upcoming season. Momentum seems to have been there for Liberty, and they built on it with Jamie Chabwell, great hire by all accounts from Coastal Carolina. Virginia Tech seems to be trending in the right direction uh, from some of their offseason player acquisition and who might be coming in when they bring in players. Virginia, just based on last year, it appears to the novice that Tony Elliott, and again, I want them to succeed, but uh, you got to call a spade a spade. They had the same pieces that had a prolific offense in 2021, and in 2022, that offense regressed, and then those talented pieces left. And we know about the tragedy on grounds and the impact it's had, but just looking at this from a pure football standpoint, do you have concerns yourself about Virginia and the momentum or lack thereof around their program entering this season? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we. We, we go faster than ever now in evaluating these things, you know, so it is one season, but it just wasn't, it, it didn't have like hints of, of, uh, of promise very much. And I think one, one thing that really probably will always fascinate me is the idea of being an assistant or a coordinator versus being a head coach and, and how different are those two jobs and here, here, you know, just following national college football for for years now since the playoffs started, um, there was a lot of Clemson in it, you know, and that we all thought that, um, you know, I think Clemson's six appearances in the playoff, extraordinary, and uh, we all thought about their two coordinators, and we all thought about um, how those guys were going to almost certainly wind up as head coaches somewhere. And then we watched both of them last year really struggle. Uh, the two who left were Oklahoma and Virginia. And so, and those were big struggles. And so it made me think about that old idea again about how those are two different jobs and do you need to, to grow into the head coach job? You know, what, what needs to happen? Are there people, you know, certainly the moment Urban Meyer became a head coach, just to throw out one example, and was at Bowling Green at the beginning, 
I mean, that was a guy who was, was at least in the college game, uh, not only ready, but extraordinary at that job, that particular job. So, yeah, it made me – the Virginia season um, is just as still tragic and horrifying as it, as it remains at the end. But before that made me think, maybe wonder about that old issue of, of coordinator versus head coach. That's a really good point and the difficulty of finding uh, out what you've really got in a head coach until something like that happens. Is there a sense of expedited urgency amongst fans and administrators? And this is not restricted to just Virginia. It's with all programs and you cover plenty of them. Chalk at WashingtonPost.com. But because of the transfer mm-hmm. portal and the ability to easily turn over a roster, that people expect results sooner or so when you're learning on the fly how to transition from being an assistant to being a head coach, it can be that much more challenging. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I do think that I feel that ratcheted up ex- expectation around. And, you know, that is something that came up last year during the playoff when TCU. Up, beat Michigan and made it to the final and you know and there was a lot of talk around about that then that there were going to be more teams like TCU you know the the playoff had gone that was its ninth season and it had lacked a darling it never had a darling you know it never had what we love about March Madness you know it never had really had that had Cincinnati in there but you know somebody to to make a little run not that the runs are long in a four-team event but TCU became the first sort of darling of, of the of the history of the thing. And in the process of that, we heard a lot about how because of the transfers and because of the ability to, you know, build on the fly more than ever, that in turn is, is going to produce more teams like that. And that in turn is going to produce more of the expectations of of what you're you're referring to, you know, the hope. It's going to give more hope, which is I can't figure all this out, but it strikes me as really strange in a time when the empires seem to be getting more powerful than ever. Yeah, you bring that point up because I think we saw that in the national title game, and you know, it didn't take anybody yeah. to it take a novice could have figured that out. My wife and I could figure that out pretty quickly. Yep, we're going to bed by halftime because this thing's going to be over. But to get to that point, to have an opportunity, and even if you lose that game, to be able to have that as a selling point potentially going forward, how much of that is the value of the expanded college football playoff? That you're not selling the fact that more teams means you're going to have more challenges to a Georgia or an Alabama or whomever is in that top echelon, you're selling the fact that over time you might be able to consistently get back there and maybe at least improve your lot in life in college football, whereas previously you had to get into one of those four team spots, and if you didn't, by the time the end of the season and the postseason came around, what you saw in the bowl game might not even resemble your normal roster if everyone had either left for a new job as a coach, entered the transfer portal, or opted out for the NFL draft. Yeah, and that. That you know, and when we see the twelve teams, are we going to see routes? And I think that's what everybody kind of expects, which is odd because here in this one way, it's going to be more egalitarian. You get more teams, more chances, you know, more visibility for these teams. And yet, on the other hand, you're probably going to get a greater uh, talent differential between, say, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Uh, now I, we have to we have to put Michigan in there after two straight playoffs. Uh, you, you're probably going to get greater discrepancy at some of these. You know, they're not that many more games, but some of these earlier games. And so, I think, you know, that's that's another puzzle that's going to 
that's going to puzzle us um, is that um, it's it's going to be different, but it's in a way it's going to be it's going to feel the same. I think for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of getting to that point, and that's one of the worthwhile things. And of course, Chuck Culpepper monitoring that with us in the fast lane as he does at WashingtonPost.com and Chuck Culpepper one on Twitter. By the way, check him out at Chuck Culpepper on Instagram for all the beautiful photos of wherever he's visiting and traveling, which is part of what we'll get to right now. You and yes, your husband was lucky enough to tag along, but you guys got to be there for Roland Garros in the French Open, and obviously, we're getting ready to to reach the conclusion of Wimbledon. Um, the men's side of the bracket. We'll look at that first right now because while they're still getting ready for the semifinal matchup, um, where men's tennis is right now, I've used this analogy a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong. I ran a marathon or a half marathon once, finished in third. My wife's like, yes, congratulations. You got a check and you finished in third. I'm like, yeah, honey, but I was seven minutes behind the guy in second and he was seven minutes behind the guy who won. Are we at that point in men's tennis, or is it maybe that Carlos Alcaraz is closing the gap on Novak Djokovic and could potentially overtake him at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open later this year? Yeah, I think we all thought that when it reached this point, after the years and years of the big three, which was just so it was so hard to describe how great they were, and and I guess what happened in that process is that. They all played so many big matches, the three of them, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, that they became so much better than everybody else at the art of playing big points and big matches. I could sit and watch Djokovic play big points all afternoon and evening long because I've almost never seen anybody who masters them so well. So we thought this was going to be you know, the time when that all kind of unravels and maybe we don't recognize the the successors as well as we recognize these three big stars. Now, here's this Wimbledon with these extraordinary semifinals. And when you put Medvedev, who has won a slam, a slam tournament, you put him um, in there opposite Alcaraz, who has just, you know, if you go to one of these tournaments, the fans are so delighted with him. And for good, for good reason, he exudes joy. It's one of those athletes who exudes joy. Reminds me Steph Curry in that way. Kylian Mbappe, the, the soccer player from France. So I think the idea that they've got him against Medvedev, which is just a dazzling matchup. And then on the other side, Djokovic, you know, who could win the calendar Grand Slam this year. He is now eight matches or nine matches away from it. Um, but they got them and the, him in the other semifinal against Yannick Sinner, and last year on center court, they played, you know, a match where center was up two sets before Djokovic came back. So, um, yeah, I, I, when I think about this era, I thought, okay, there's going to be this downturn in terms of, you know, recognizability of, and things like that. And now I come upon these semifinals that they've got over there right now, and I think, I don't know, wow, this is pretty dazzling. It is. It's captivating and compelling on a different level that maybe things are crystallizing on the men's side for tennis, uh, as they always are at WashingtonPost.com when Chuck Culpepper puts an article out there. I would say pin it, but he keyboards it up there uh, at WashingtonPost.com. Um, Christopher Eubanks, kid from Atlanta, Georgia, he made the quarterfinals before yeah. losing and actually had a chance to, to win that against Daniil Medvedev before kind of unraveling late. Is this sustainable, or is it more likely to be, and this isn't a bad thing, 
but like Francis Tiafo last year who made the run at the U.S. Open and will be around occasionally but less likely to be the guy that you expect to be always there in quarterfinals semifinals and making these deep runs I think there's a temptation to say somebody has arrived and and boy this story Eubanks is just (laughs) the idea that he sort of thought maybe he wasn't good enough to be elite and so he went and did tennis commentary to try to you know hone that skill a few years ago and and now and he didn't like playing on grass you know and now the grass major tournament is the one that where he you know and with that serve it's easy to explain but it comes through in advance to the quarterfinal and nearly the semi but as with tiafo who had a really good french open even though he lost third round looked really good, so much better on his worst surface. There's getting up to the top ten, and then there's that idea of staying there. And I think staying there is another art altogether. I think sometimes I'm tempted to to say, okay, someone has arrived, but then there's always a next question. And that next question is what we don't know, which is uh, how, how well can he sustain this? Because to his delight and surprise the level he attained at Wimbledon is really really high it is and that's one great point to remember of just how difficult it is to sustain it regularly women's tennis most people believe that it's Iga Svatek as well as Elena Rabakina and Arena Sabalenka they have won the last three grand slams our last four grand slams that will change on Sunday does Anj Jabor enter that conversation if she can pull off what's a really cool story, having been up a set last year and missing the chance to beat Rabakina? Now this year, beating Rabakina last round, and then today being down a set and a break in the second set, rallying to win, and now theoretically exercising those demons and, dare I say it, reaching that pantheon of being the fourth, always got to think she's a factor, women's tennis player? Yeah, I think... If she wins this, you've got to put her, and you might already do it, but if she wins it, you've got to say that it's four because this will make the, six, the last six Grand Slam tournaments. She, this will be her third final out of six. Uh, she's got another quarterfinal, I think, at the French, as I recall, if I have that right. This is one of the most delightful people you, we have ever seen in any sport. There's a government official in Tunisia, where her homeland, who called her who has named her the Minister of Happiness, like it's a government position. She is just so beloved on tour. She's just one of those people who, when she comes in the room, she doesn't necessarily light up the room immediately, but her company and her her conversation and her ability to, you know, to laugh at herself and to, to laugh in general and to, to be funny and um, and to be insightful, she's just... She's somebody everybody roots for, and I think when you look at this final, it might not be as kind of starry as as people would think with Vondrasova on the other side, although it's her second major final, so that's something. But I think if Jabour were to win, just her whole story of coming from a country that had never produced any tennis, you know, it's a really good soccer country, but never produced any you know tennis stars. At that moment on Saturday, her her whole story could reach this this point of just absolutely dreamy. And I think, yeah, you'll, you'd have to put her in. You'd have to say it's four at that point.
No question. It, it would be, and it, it would be really cool to see if that ends up being what transpires. It's also really cool to get the insight from Chuck Culpepper, who's with us in the fast lane. Chuck, uh, we'll wrap it up with this set of topics, and we're appreciative of your time on W266, BG Timberlake, WVGMA on Lynchburg, WMNA, Gretna, Danville, Southside, and all across the CBS Sports Radio Lynchburg app in the Virginia Talk Radio Network. And that is the Women's World Cup. Is it as simple as Team USA and everyone else as it's been so regularly? Or do you see them being legitimately challenged, especially with injuries entering the picture over the last month and change? Yeah, I think they're legitimately challenged. I think it's uh, encouraging for them that that their, their brigade of youngsters is really, really energetic and promising. And I was at the, the Friendly in San Jose, California on Sunday against Wales, and it really shone, shined in that match. And I think, um, but I think the world, everyone likes to say the world is caught up through, it kind of always caught up. The U.S. didn't win any World Cup between 99 and 15. So, um, but, you know, there's a lot, there's a whole bale of teams just below in the rankings who just as much could win this thing. And then, the, the more interesting for me is the, that sort of next level after that, where, you know, that level is becoming better and better. And this World Cup is, I'm especially intrigued by Haiti being in it. I think that's a monumental achievement. Zambia, Portugal, Morocco, which did so well, its men did so well in uh, Qatar in the men's World Cup last last whatever it was winter <laughs> fall late fall and winter and um so i think as uh the u.s manager uh was, was and andonofsky was saying on sunday it's that level that's gotten better and we're not, he thinks we're not going to see as many of these seven nil eight nil games ten nil sometimes that we used to see in the early parts of it so that also makes it more of a task, plus the idea of trying to win something for the third time in a row is just always, you know, that's that's always going to be a really tiring grind, I think. So, yeah, I think it's, I think what they're trying to do is hard. I think they're capable of it, meaning the U.S. I think they're capable of it for sure, but I think, I think it's going to be harder than before even. So is this a principle almost of UConn women's basketball, or maybe even you could put on in a different sports level, Tiger Woods and golf, where over a period of time, their presence and dominance inspired others to elevate their game, and now we're starting to see that and maybe a cumulatively overall more interesting and better product in women's soccer than we've ever seen before at the Women's World Cup as it comes in in the next couple weeks. Yeah, I think it's, you know what it reminds me of? Because it's an every four-year kind of thing, reminds me of the Spain men's team, which won the Euros in 08, the World Cup in 10, and the Euros in 12. Was such a beautiful style of play, beautiful team, so clearly the best in the world at that point. And then they got to the 14 World Cup in Brazil, and it just kind of it wears out. It's very hard. It, these are long campaigns, you know, four years between World Cups, uh, it, and it, you know, and then the other tournaments in between. And so, you know, I think you, you kind of reach that point where, and this is what they're trying to do now in the program, where you're so grateful to the people who got you up there, but those people are getting older, and you have to you have to play kind of a cold game in a way where you, and, you know, cold strategy where you, you, you try to start going to your next generation if you want to maintain 
this kind of a dynasty. And so 14 new players on this U.S. team who have never played in a World Cup, that's going to be interesting. And it's going to be a test of how well they have uh, managed that strategy of trying to um, – you have to quash your sentimentality a bit and be a bit kind of ruthless in your selections in a way. And, you know, when you look at uh, Rodman, the pl- player who scored twice on Sunday, 21 years old, and just the energy in the match changes upon her entry into it, you know. So uh, that's the kind of thing you're looking for is can the youth, you know, carry the ball the next – or I guess you can't carry it in soccer. But um, but kick the ball to the next level, and um, and you're, you're kind of managing that at the same time. The inexperience mingled with the idea that you have to go to the inexperience if you're going to maintain this kind of dynasty. And yes, that is Dennis Rodman's daughter, just for people who didn't know that. Yeah. So, so just, just <laughs> want to be clear here. Is she going to be the biggest story, by the way, at the end of this World Cup, that it's Dennis Rodman's daughter who came in? She could be. I mean, there's, there's other young players... Um, there's Alyssa Thompson, a young, an 18-year-old from Los Angeles, who is just dazzling. You know, just a great talent. Was in high, you know, you, imagine being in high school and then I guess go to your graduation and and it, this is in L.A., North Hollywood, and then or near North Hollywood, and then you, then your next month right after high school, you go play in a World Cup. You know, <laughs> it's just that's just really something. There's a player, Sophia Smith, who's young, who could really star as well um it could be any one of several people rodman has that kind of you know um that pull because we all recognize uh who her father was and we all we all and is and we all know that um she said recently that she took elements of his game his reading of basketball and she's kind of tried to use those in, in studying them videos he was one of the best reader, readers of the game of basketball we've ever seen, and that's how you win rebounding title after rebounding title, obviously. Um, and so she's tried to read her sport, you know, and tr- tried to learn, you know, how to read her sport in a, in a way like that to always seem to turn up at the place you need to be. So um, if you had to go to the gambling window, which I don't do, um, and, and bet on um, – a player to be the one most recognized after this? I guess, yes, it would be her, but there's a few other candidates around as well. Looking forward to the action, not only with Wimbledon and obviously the Women's World Cup, but you're chronicling it for WashingtonPost.com and at Chuck Culpepper Instagram and Chuck Culpepper one on Twitter. Chuck, a pleasure to speak with you. Best of luck and safety in travels. And uh, remind your husband how lucky he is that he gets to uh, come along (laughs) for the ride. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Our pleasure. Chuck Culpepper with us here in the Fast Lane. That does it for us today. If you missed anything, hit us up, Fast Lane Ed Lane, where you listen to podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, with Fast Lane Ed Lane, and Trey Lyle VT are the handles. We'll get to some of your feedback tomorrow in the Fast Lane. Plus, our votes of confidence. Do Trey and I make the obligatory pick for NASCAR in New Hampshire along with I will not. some other legitimate insight? Find out tomorrow in the Fast Lane. In the meantime, now, very belated, but time to go live to the Zach.